Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 10, issue 549, and we will be talking about Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne, also known as Lucifer's Call. Joining me, Leah Haydu, in issue 549 are Brian Edwards. Hello, hello. Joshua Garrity. Hello. And Rich Davison. Hello. Hello, everybody. So before we get going, we are going to issue a great big old fat spoiler warning on this plot, because I'm not sure that any of us 100% are going to be able to uh, explain the intricacies of it. But there is a, a pretty involved, I guess is a good way to say it, plot mm -hmm. for this game. So if you are one of those folks who uh, maybe is interested in playing this game, go for it. Do the thing. It is available on modern consoles now, and uh, you you can probably make your way through it in something like 30 hours. If you are so inclined and don't want to be spoiled on the plot, then this is your warning. So get out now and then come back to us. We would love to have you. So in the meantime, what is Shin Megami Tensei 3? Well, it's a role-playing game. I think we all can agree on that much, at least. It uh, is. No, uh, I've decided <laughs> no? that I disagree. Oh, wait a minute. Are we going to argue? <laughs> We're already going to argue. No, I sorry, knew it. carry on, Leah. Apologies. <laughs> it was uh, conceived after the development of Shin Megami Tensei 2, obviously, and also a different Shin Megami Tensei branch uh, called Shin Megami Tensei If. It is the third numbered entry in the series, which is the uh, kind of central uh, storyline that the other. Uh, branch offs come from so there are i'm not going to go through the entirety of the shin megami tensei series and everything that comes from it but if you've heard of or encountered games such as devil summoner devil survivor or probably the one most people are going to be familiar with is persona of course which is why josh and i are here probably <laughs> um yeah that that is that is uh where all of these kind of stem from this, however, uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne is actually the eighth title of the series and comes after Shin Megami Tensei 9. Now, Shin Megami Tensei 9 is not named so for its numerical position in the series. Obviously, it has something to do with the characters and the organizations in the game. But it is pretty funny that the eighth entry in the series comes after the one that is named 9. So... This is the first mainline Shin Megami Tensei game that was released outside of Japan. So 1 and 2 were both only released in Japan. And then we already did have uh, some insight into this series through the PS1 titles, Persona 1 and Persona 2. So it actually would have been Revelations Persona in the West. And then Persona 2, half of Persona 2 was what we got in the West we only got uh, Persona 2 Eternal Punishment. Persona 2 Innocent Sin, the other half of Persona 2, was not released in the West um, until I think I got a PSP port or something at, at some point, possibly. But uh, never, never officially released the PS1 version over here. So everything is very straightforward so far. In uh, 1996 <laughs> and 2000, respectively, uh, those Persona 1 and 2 were released in the West. So this was uh, well after that. This came out originally in Japan in 2004, and then a little bit later on in 2004, so January in Japan, October 2004 in North America, and then uh, almost, well, not quite a year later, but uh, considerably time later in the EU, July of 2005, uh, released over there, uh, all on the PlayStation 2. 
we also have an HD remaster that is very recent and I think is probably going to be um, just quick quick whip around here. That is the version that we all played for this, correct? Yes. Yep, yep. correct. Okay. All right, cool. That's what I thought. That's the one that's kind of the easiest to get a hold of these days. But the remaster, the HD remaster, which came out for the PlayStation 4 and the Switch, came out in Japan October of 2020, and then it came out everywhere else May of 2021. Reviews were generally pretty positive, received a uh, 36 out of 40 from Famitsu, and an aggregated score on Metacritic of a 79%. So, um, before we dive headlong into the wonderful world of Tokyo after the conception, I'd like to talk a little bit about our history with the game, and uh, Brian, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, I didn't play this one at release. Um, I was aware of the Shin Megami Tensei series. We kind of talked about that already. I, I played a couple Persona games. I'd actually played, first one of the mainline series I played was Shin Megami Tensei 4 on my 3DS. I remember it got great reviews, and I downloaded it, and then I was like, whoa, this is way harder than I was expecting a video game to be, and I kind of had to learn a little bit about the games. Um, so when I, I remember I saw this, the Nocturne remaster get announced. Uh, it was on the Nintendo Direct, I think, is where I first saw it get announced. I was like, oh, that sounds like something I'd want to revisit. And I bought it, like many other things, uh, when it came out, and there it sat for quite some time until it became time to play it for the podcast. Uh, so I played through it. Over the course of maybe a month, uh, back in August and September, and I want to say I hit credits somewhere around like the 30, 35 hour mark. Um, but yeah, this is kind of, kind of working my way backwards through the series a little bit, but this would be the first time I had played and completed the game was for the show. Uh, Josh, how about you? Were you, uh... You, were you born in 2003, or is that... <laughs> oh, hardy, hardy, hard. <laughs> Listen, I gotta get my jabs in. <laughs> I'm 32 now, Leah. I'm an adult. <laughs> a proper <laughs> one. No, we, um, can't, we can't talk about that. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't play this back in release. Um, I I picked it up... I did pick it up on PS2 quite a while ago. I want to say, like, it would have been around the time that I... I first got into Persona. So, God, I hate to say it, but that's probably 10 years ago now. Um, so, yeah, like, it was around the time that I, I first played um, uh, Persona 3 and Persona 4, just because the, the conversation around it was, like, this is the game that kind of started a lot of the trends that got carried on with with that series, right? Both mechanically... Some of the theming, um, and certainly like the the monsters and everything else. So I was curious. Um, I got a little ways into the PS2 version, um, but got really put off by the difficulty and the specific brand of difficulty that I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, I finished the remastered version um, of this game for the for the recording. Uh, I am going to confess uh, that at a certain point I did turn the difficulty down to the DLC difficulty, the merciful difficulty, um, in in order to finish the game, because otherwise uh, I would have thrown my PC uh, out the window. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's my history with this one. I think we're all in a 
a relatively similar vein there. Um, Rich, what about you? Yeah, 2005 when it was out in uh, the EU was that was the lost year for me. That was the year that I was a fresh fresher at university, so it was a, a the single year of my life where I probably didn't play any video games. And to be honest with you, I don't really think it would have hit me um, at the time. Um, just being the third game in a series, I think it would have probably felt quite alien that I hadn't played anything um, beforehand. Um, but actually, the imperative to go back and play Shin Megami Tensei 3 was because I was kind of latterly uh, like a big fan of Persona. And the initiative was basically, what, what can I do to kind of um, almost like marinate in the Persona kind of lore? How can we see the the lineage from where we, we got to to like one of the finest games ever made, in my opinion? So um, when it was announced at the Nintendo Direct, much like Brian, I, I was there day one. And I think it might be um, buyer's remorse in hindsight in 2022 because I played that game right away. Um, I was probably the first among the four of us to finish it. And I don't use that as a point of honor. I just felt um, somehow like I needed to get in there early because if it sucked, then there was no way I was going to find the motivation to go through and, and play for the game. But actually my kind of um journey with it kind of mirrors a lot of what josh had it was a 40 hour playthrough which is significantly longer than what how long the beat would have you believe um and that was largely because i played most of it in the regular difficulty i got up to the um hell rider you know the the kind of um ghost rider kind of skeletal um motorcyclist boss and he just whipped me over and over and over again until i realized that you had to literally download uh, a, a patch for the easier um a difficulty and then basically smash through the rest of the game um so yeah i'm I'm ready to chat i'm gonna withhold some of my thoughts and feelings while we get into the meat of the game cheers yeah uh so my my um experience with this game is actually pretty close to josh's as well i picked it up on the ps2 somewhere around the time that i was getting really into persona so it probably would have been i don't know 2010 2011 something around there and I did try to play it, and I know exactly what it was that where it was that I stopped. It was at the Matador boss, which is a lot earlier than I remembered it being, uh, as because as I uh, went back in this time with fully armed with the merciful difficulty mode that you can get uh, as a free downloadable patch for uh, the. Um, the version that now is uh is the most readily available yeah i got to that point in maybe like an hour hour and a half and i really did not remember it being that soon after you start the game because i probably put a considerable amount more time into it when i tried the ps2 version than i did this time around because i'm sure that i had to grind and had to you know do some things over probably so um, that's when I stopped playing the PS2 version, was at the Matador boss, picked it back up on the PS4 and have been through. I started out, as I say, with, with Merciful Difficulty fully installed. I also had a walkthrough that I was not shy about using because there's, as again, we will talk about a lot of labyrinths, literal labyrinths in this game. And uh, I just did not really fancy getting lost. So I... I guess I cheated my way through this, and um, we'll talk about whether that's a, a a decent way to play this game or not, because I, I have some kind of thoughts both ways. But uh, this was actually my choice for Volume 11, 
and my primary thought behind that was that this game gets so, so much praise for being one of the greatest JRPGs of all time, something that really drove the Persona series that has become so much more popular recently. And yeah, I, I wanted to get through it for myself and to be able to have that experience to see, even if I didn't agree that it was one of the greatest JRPGs of all time, to actually know what I was talking about a little bit more in the case that I uh, was called upon to do so. And in this case, i.e. the case of recording the podcast, I guess I guess I'm being called upon to do so by my own um by my own hand and um hoisted I'm not by your own petard yeah i know say, i yes. i really screwed myself here <laughs> um but yeah i as we'll talk about i i'm not sure that i i really would even still feel comfortable describing why this is intended to be or this is considered to be rather one of the greatest jrpgs ever so i'm hoping that you guys can help me out with that and I think it'll be a fun discussion and nobody's going to scream or cry or anything. It'll be great. <laughs> so I'd like to start with what I think from our uh, previous discussions prior to recording seems to be kind of the the piece of the puzzle that most of us have kind of the strongest, the strongest feelings for positively. Um, Negatively, I'm sure we have some strong feelings as well, but we'll get there. Uh, yeah, and that's going to be the kind of scenario and the setting of the game. Um, it, it's it's I, I it's in one of these uh, pieces of correspondence that I'm going to read out, but there is definitely a vibe to this game, and I think that's probably the thing that I got the most out of from it. So I'd like to start on I'd like to start on a positive note before we get into tearing apart some things, uh, which I think we are going to do in a little bit. But before we do that, let's start with a piece from the forum. This is from Fermi's Parasol, who says, Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne begins with a nightmare and ends in a dream. In the first five minutes of the game, you go from being a thoughtful student visiting his teacher at the hospital to the arrival of the apocalypse, and finally your metamorphosis into a demi-fiend via ingestion of a demonic insect at the behest of Lucifer. And the nightmare continues for the next 40 hours until you finish the game. The world is transformed into ruins. There is no respite. You can be attacked anywhere, including cities where you restock on health, items, talk to NPCs, and conduct demon summoning. The music is dour and foreboding, taking more cues from Trent Reznor's Quake soundtrack than any poppy JRPG. The plot, cutscenes, and NPC conversations are spare, another departure from typical JRPGs. But they perfectly match the ruined world. You are fighting for your life, and so is everyone else here, demon or human. The multiplicity of endings is foreshadowed from the start as your former friends adopt different ideals to reshape the Vortex world, each informed by trauma. One retreats into his psychological shell and seeks a world of isolation. Another decides that the only new reality is kill or be killed. A society of mannequins find a prophet to lead them from the demonic enslavement. The latter are, despite their origin, the most humanist of the inhabitants, and their fate is almost foreordained. Any more traditional but inferior RPG, you would be given the option to save them. Through all this, you are silent, responding only to a handful of questions, never voice acted. I do wonder whether this was a game that influenced from software style of storytelling, interior, minimalist, formalist. So in the beginning of this game, we start off with the end of the world, which is generally something that you're trying to avoid in a JRPG. Now, I play a lot of these JRPG type games, and yeah, there's... 
they they go big. They go big a lot of the time, but this isn't typically the kind of thing that you see right at the opening. So there is an event called the Conception, and when this kicks off, Tokyo kind of becomes the inside of a big sphere, and that is the Vortex world. So that's what we're starting with. We are not starting with, let's save the world. We are starting with, the world's already gone, now what? And my question to you guys is, is this something that A, struck a chord with you, and B, we think maybe was a reason why it stuck with a lot of people since it was so unusual? So I found the game's opening hours to be pretty striking um, and unique in a sense that, uh, as you said, Leah, you're always seeming to be in JRPGs to be avoiding the calamity. Um, I did find it weird that students were going to visit a teacher in the hospital. I don't know why that made me feel weird, but it made me feel weird. Um, like if, uh, uh, but yeah, there's she something. She didn't call ab- any of her teacher friends. She called a couple of her students and is like, "Hey, come to this hospital." Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I just at least she's not turning up to your house in a maid outfit. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> oh, yes. you know what? Solid point, Josh. Um, <laughs> but like that that initial kind of you can't even call it really a dungeon. But that little hospital section where where the kind of the plot is revealed, and then you from there exit out into this kind of unique orb overworld where you're this little almost like game board piece moving around on it. Um, I found that to be kind of striking, not really knowing what you were getting into. At this point, we've all played a lot of JRPGs, right? So to have the opening hours surprise you is something maybe that you just don't come across very often. So, so yeah, I was, I was initially very much on board to see what was going on. I was, but I was also initially completely confused because once you kind of become the demon, the demi fiend, and you know you get your cool ass laser tattoos and you're doing your thing, the game starts dropping a lot of story on you immediately and who you're looking for and why and 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 all of a sudden your friends that you met have split off and done these things and um it is a little overwhelming at that start, but I found it a a neat world to go out and poke at yeah. i I think that this setup is is the reason why I was attracted to this game and why um despite the things that we'll talk about later on i really wanted to like this game because it's such a it's such a cool idea um like jrpgs not 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 just in terms of storytelling but i think in general it's a very safe genre like they they deal in a lot of tropes they deal in a lot of archetypes um and gameplay systems frankly have have not come along a long way um since you know the the PlayStation 1 you know PlayStation 1 days like yes it's slicker and Persona 5 specifically does a lot of things to um improve things like UI but it's essentially you know the the kind of skeleton of the genre is very similar to to what it was um way back in the 90s so to see something be a little bit daring with at least one aspect of the the kind of vision of what the genre is was really exciting. Um, and it's not just the concept. Like we we see the apocalypse a lot in video games. It's the specific kind of vision of it, the specific kind of artistic approach, the artistic um, execution of it. Like the 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 vision of uh the conception itself when you see it play out in 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 that cutscene it's creepy like it's really unsettling and and unnerving um and what's left after is also just kind of 
like weirdly dreamlike, weirdly um, surreal in a way that you're you're not used to um, uh, seeing um, when um, seeing like visions of the apocalypse. I, I, I this seed uh, had huge potential to flower into something interesting. And to, to piggyback off what both of you said, the the setting and and the world uh, that Leah described, it's essentially a world that's being reformed by demons. And one of the more interesting um, aspects of the game that I found is that you would go into, you know, your towns, villages, or they were, some of them are, you can't even really consider them towns, except for Ginza, kind of the, the initial opening city, and the city of mannequins. We'll talk about that later. But, um, like, your vendors and bartenders and security guards are all just enemies that you're also fighting within the game. I, I find that very cool. Like, normally you're going into, like, it's always a world that's ravaged by demons, right? And you're talking to other people. But as far as we can tell, like, only the main, the protagonists, their friends, and kind of these other few characters are the only, quote-unquote, humans that are in that world. And the rest of the world is just kind of inhabited by demons. So you'll you'll come across these uh, these uh, character models that you're normally fighting in battles, but they might just be a NPC that has an interesting dialogue point for you in a city. And I, I, I think... That kind of turns some of the JRPG trope stuff on its head a little bit. Yeah, Brian, you mentioned just there at the beginning about um, like the formation of society and like what kind of occupies that vacuum. And I can't think of anything that's more Japanese than that. Like you've got to think about like contemporary Japanese history with the American occupation, and then some of the media that's kind of fallen out of that latter forty years after World War Two. You know, Godzilla as an analogy for nuclear war. Think about things like Akira, those massive kind of seismic Japanese cultural um, bits of media that have just permeated across the West and given us a kind of glimpse about how formative it is for not just kind of like Japanese culture, but people. Like Hideo Kojima seems to be obsessed with nuclear warfare. Like what happens after the effect of a nuclear bomb? Like what occupies that vacuum? It's just something that's really kind of resonant in that way. Yeah. Yuliana uh, from the Patreon says, oh, this is the one that I was thinking of. Nocturne has got vibes. Aesthetically, it's immaculate. Functionally, I found it puzzling, and the combat could be infuriating, as it offers the you-unexpectedly-died-and-have-lost-progress experience, as in many SMT games. Also, that combat theme made me want to tear my ears off. Why does it sound more compressed and distorted than any N64 cartridge track? (laughs) Nocturne has a special place in my heart, but one that's informed more by rosy-tinged nostalgia than deep gameplay mechanics or engagement. But it deserves respect for the vibes alone. So, on the subject of vibes, um, I'd, I'd like to talk about the audio and the visuals um, and, and kind of how those informed our opinions, if, if they did, in fact. Um, so, anybody want to start us off? I, I, I really like the way this game looks during the more authored moments of, of the game. And what I mean by that is... When you're focused on a character or a specific set piece or something like that, I think it genuinely looks really good. Um, it looks of its era, don't get me wrong. Like It's clearly a PlayStation 2 game, but there's something about the way the character models um, are designed. There's something about where, the way scenes are lit that just drip with atmosphere. Like it, 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 Those moments, I think it, it really shines. But then you go through the dungeons, and it's just and like to to be fair, Persona games that I love are guilty of this as well. But I think like the Persona games make up for it with style and pizzazz in the actual fights themselves. 
Um, but the 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 dungeons in this game are visually really unstimulating. They're really dull, um, and unfortunately as well, I, I feel like um, though these are monsters that we we will see um, crop up in the Persona series, specifically Persona Five, um, like literally I, I feel, the same. Like, yeah, they're literally the same models. Yeah, there's something quite sterile about these their depiction here versus their depiction in uh, in other Shin Megami Tensei or Persona games it's a weird it's a weird one i i feel like at its best it, it, it's it's visually like it's really working and it's it's achieving exactly what the artists and and the creators by this uh, of this game are wanting to achieve that 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 atmosphere that surrealness that kind of uncanny vibe um, but at its worst, it's just really dull and boring. I, for me, this is a game about the symbols and the characters. So, like, I completely agree with what you said about the dungeons. There's a there's some particular uh, dungeons that involve uh, sections of floor that will hurt you. It's kind of just red mist all over the floor and kind of these really labyrinthine. I mean, that last dungeon leading up the hundred and whatever floors, like, just drab and and boring insides, but. There's moments in the game where it's like pointing out a symbol or a character, like that first moment when you walk in and you're tasked with the three uh, pyramids that you have to go into, and you're kind of in this big, open, almost looks like a like a still lake body. One of these three towering pyramids you have to go to, or you know when you're uh, when you're going up the um, oh I'm gonna forget the name of the group. Uh, it's the Nihilo, I believe. Um, who, uh, who you uh, are kind of going up, and you and you meet this th- their leader, and it's basically there's this giant three headed lion statue, and he's talking to you. I mean, just the characters and these, uh, the the even the Tokyo Diet Building, for example, or or the park, like where it has kind of these big open areas that are like impressive and neat, and vi- they draw the eye. They're visually stimulating, and um. Uh, the character design on the mannequin serial killer with all the other mannequin faces kind of stitched on him. Like, that that stuff works really well. But then when it comes into the practice of actually playing the game and what the visuals that you're being treated to the most often and most regular, that's where it loses me. Um, the, the Amala labyrinth with kind of those yellow pulsating walls is almost nauseating to me. Um, and, and, and if you get lost in those sections or... In certain sections, you're getting turned around because characters will set up traps, and then they'll basically just turn you around or put you back, or you go down a. They'll make a certain path a dead end. Like those are the moments where I found myself literally, you know, sighing, being like, ah, oh, you know, here we go. Like I just want to get back out into the open world. I just want to get back to the things that are interesting. But unfortunately, I was spending more time in the areas that were not. This is where I I got into the the guides, the the walkthroughs, pretty hard. Because I'm terrible with directions. Like, in real life, I'm bad with directions. (laughs) In games, I am bad with directions. And these games have pretty decent maps. Like, it's it's more or less okay. At least when you're in the, the labyrinths themselves. But everything just looks the same, and they are intentionally trying to get you turned around, and to get you confused and disoriented. And that's, I mean, they do a good job with that because that is the intent, but it's frustrating for me personally. So yeah, I it, it's I agree with what Josh was saying. Like in, in some Persona games, 
especially the ones that would have been the closest to this, that being Persona 3, which has Tartarus in it that, you know, has, again, randomly generated floors in it that only have kind of a loose theme in big chunks. You can kind of see the lineage there more specifically. Same game engine as well, you know, Leah. So that yeah. that also is partly the reason why it's so similar in Persona 3. Yeah. But but just to give Persona 3 some credit, though, like... I never truly got lost in yeah. those dungeons, right? Yeah. Like, like the the visual feedback in Persona Three is very clear. Like, it's never it never leaves information opaque to the player, right? It never it, it never deliberately tries to frustrate you in terms of navigation and stuff like that. The, the challenge is in the combat. Um, that's where the challenge is derived from in that game. Whereas here, like. It's not fun. To, it, it's not fun to get turned around in this this style of game, right? There's the there are genres where getting lost is kind of appealing, but it's not. It, it's not in a space like this. It's it's stuff like Elden Ring. It's stuff like Breath of the Wild. Here, it's just annoying. Um, if you get so, lost, yeah. there is no reward for it. That yeah. that there may be in one of those other types of games. It's just. Your reward is, okay, well then do that last part again and don't mess it up this time. All right. This is a 20-year-old game, give or take, that feels 40-year-old in its sensibilities, in the way that it presents itself. And you see that when you trace it back to Megami Tensei from 1987, that very kind of labyrinthine approach, the very deliberate geometric uh, setup of the levels. And the conversation that I've had with myself, and I know, Leah, we've had many conversations about this in particular, is... To what extent are Atlas incapable of deviating from that very specific formula because of the success and the pertinence of Shin Megami Tensei? And how did they kind of allow uh, Persona to exist alongside that in a way to try and sort of like really sweat that asset and drive out a bit of innovation and a little bit of a, a, a different game? And you can really trace that through the Persona series. Persona 3, to me, and we, we, Leah and I streamed Persona 1 uh, and a little bit of Persona 2 together a bit earlier this year. It feels very similar to Shin Megami Tensei 3. Persona yeah. 3 in particular, that Tartarus section does also have a like a, a real strong whiff of of this kind of labyrinthine approach, but then you see it push on there. And and it's it's in mechanically in the way that the scenario presents itself um, that, I, that I feel that most acutely. It, it, it feels like it's beholden to a formula that that is kind of long since gone. And I just want to stress at this point, this is 2003. At this point, we've had the PS1 era Final Fantasies, and I'm sorry if this is a really reductive approach to it, but we also had Final Fantasy X, a game that had complete 3D environments that felt distinct, that felt living and breathing and like worth inhabiting in. But when you're going through the labyrinths in this game, it's it's uncomfortable, it's oppressive, the colours make you feel very um yeah. just just gross, you know? Like nothing feels natural. It all feels very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. I if I was thinking about this quite literally yesterday, Rich. I was playing uh Sp- Pokemon Violet yesterday, and in a bubble, I enjoy that game. It's got performance issues, all these things, but in a bubble I enjoy that game. But if you compare that game to its 3D open world contemporaries on the same system, it feels 15, 20 years older than those games. Mm. And this is this is the exact same thing. If you look at and again, it's not it's not fair. They're different games, different developers, all these things, but you you can't not let that color your experience in one way or another. And it does feel, even playing a remaster, that this game 
is a bit out of time, for sure. I find it kind of fascinating that, to me, it there's a very direct line that slopes up between, let's say, Persona 1 and 2, then goes through Shin Megami Tensei 3, and directly to Persona 3 from there. Like, it's, it is yep. such a strongly blended midpoint in between those points in the series. And, you know, you can see where the Persona series got super popular was once you dragged in a lot of these elements from Shin Megami Tensei 3. So I'm wondering if the people who played it then also kind of just had a little bit of an earlier awakening than, than those of us who really started with Persona 3. I'm not sure that that's the case, but it there is just it 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 just the line that is drawn through those to me just is so clear and and, and I found that really interesting. And then it continues going to, you know, Persona's 4 and 5 where there are many of the the things that made Persona 3 so much more accessible and so much more popular in a lot of ways, but it also evolved some of those things that were holdovers from the earlier Persona games and from um, Shin Megami Tensei that, you know, kind of weren't working or just weren't weren't of the, the same time as everything else. So, yeah, Again, I, I, I think Atlas yeah. is good at learning is what I'm saying. Same Same team? Same director, same producers, same game engine. I mean, really, mm -hmm. yeah, not just in terms of like the actual finished product, but in terms of the guts that support both of those games, like creatively and um, mechanically, they are kind of one and the same, like cut from the same cloth almost. But yeah, as we mentioned, um, Final Fantasy X, Kingdom Hearts, these were all, these are games that already existed by this time. So it's kind of interesting to see just the difference and i'm not i'm not even making a qualitative judgment just the actual lay it down on paper in columns differences between the the types of involvement that a game player can have with each of these games is is kind of wild okay so um this is another piece from the forum from sage plus onion knight who says i loved the almost proto undertale darkly comic urban fantasy setting but i wish there had been more to explore than just reskinned corridors I really enjoyed how the boss battles demanded puzzle solving as much as JRPG grinding and strategizing, but I hated how many of the dungeon obstacles were just time-consuming annoyances. I thought the story of sifting through all these potential futures for a ruined world was really interesting, but it really could have used the emotional heart present in something similarly philosophically reaching like Near Automata. Yeah, I agree. All right. So before we get to the actual uh, meat of the story and the gameplay here, um, one more thing I want to touch on is the audio. I know that we all have uh, a, a fondness to at least some degree for the music of uh, the Persona games in particular. Um, Josh and I did a sound of play way back when that I think was maybe the most joyful thing we've ever recorded. Like it was, it was very... <laughs> Very happy. Um, so this has the same composer. We are still looking at Shoji Meguro here, uh, who has done so, so much for uh, Atlas's games, in, in particular Persona, but everything else too, kind of. Um, he's also done some... Um, he's, he's filled miscellaneous roles in, in various games, but is best known as their, one of their uh, kind of prolific composers. So uh, I just wanted to throw the question in here. How do we feel about the music and the audio for this game? 
am I allowed to say it's bad? Like I don't want to say whatever you want. I really hate it. I was hoping someone else would get there first. Uh, So if I'm if I'm being my most objective, I would say that it that it fails to reach any of the highs and sets I think new lows for my feelings on these games. Um, It's one of those things where, like I and I'm I'm tainted by history with this, right? Because like I expect Persona music now to basically be a mixture of J-pop and bassy jazz, you know, and and this is just kind of none of that. And I don't disagree with our previous forum correspondence. I'm sorry, I forget the name. When talking about it's the ba- Yeah, right. thank you. Yeah, the 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 battle theme, the theme that you hear the most often, the most regularly, and we'll talk about how often you hear that theme um in this game. Like <laughs> it it just doesn't give you any there's nothing about that I want to listen to all day long. And and that's kind of the exact opposite way I feel about almost every Persona game. Uh, I have, to be fair, I I don't necessarily remember the the music from Shin Megami Tensei Four that well, and I have not played Five yet. So, um, it maybe I could listen is... to Mass Destruction on a loop for hours. Yeah, like this <laughs> might hours. be more in line with this this franchise. You know, this uh, I mean this this side of the franchise, should I say? But uh, but yeah, uh, definitely, certainly not my favorite. I think the stylized the style really of the music is is maybe more in line with this like I, I i wouldn't expect it to be the exact same type of music necessarily because the game is not the exact same type of game but that right. said i agree i it just i would not say that it is bad i would say that it is a kind of unremarkable and for a game that atlas has put out it, that's almost worse for me yeah but there's some people who really like the the combat theme yeah. but like i i can only really echo what Juliana said before my problem with the battle theme is just the fact that it is compressed to hell. Like it really sounds, it sounds bad. Not because like hourly it's un, well, it, exactly because it's hourly unpleasant for my ears. Like it's not the the composed, the way it's composed is a problem. I think it's kind of it definitely feels very um, Shoji Maguro. Like you can tell that it's from the same person, but it's just too compressed. It feels like a the kind of thing that you would download by crossing your fingers in 2003 through <laughs> LimeWire, you know, uh, on your 56K uh, yeah. modem over the course of three or four days. Like, it's just problematic because it doesn't necessarily, like, have the same quality that you would expect from a, certainly in a remaster game um, in 2022, which is poorly produced. Yeah, I, I, the thing with the soundtrack for me is, like, if I had, if I didn't hear so many of the tracks on repeat... Um, I probably wouldn't hate it as much as I do, but for the battle theme to be the way it is and for me to hear it as many times as I have heard it now uh, means that I hate it. It's it's <laughs> hate through repetition, right? right. It's hate yeah. through it being drilled into my brain. Um, and, like, I mean, Leah's already referenced this, but, like, I could listen to Mass Destruction on repeat, <laughs> and I mean that genuinely. Like, that music makes me feel ready to fight demons like i'm ready i am pumped um but like that's the same with um the i forgot the name of the track but the track in persona 4 that's the same with uh um the track in persona 5 right like those are really great battle themes but not persona 5 royal just just persona 5 god no (laughs) (laughs) um um and um like but that that that's there's lots of cases across the genre like for me like jrpgs are almost you know it's make or break um if your battle theme is good or not right like because you're gonna hear it so much yeah fantasies 
uh, Final Fantasy games um, uh, are so uh, you know loom so large in in this genre is because the music's so good and so often so often the battle theme is like a winner in each of those games. Like say what you want about Final Fantasy thirteen, I think the battle theme is excellent for that <laughs> game. Um, so for it this to be what it is, um, just kind of limp and lifeless. It's just. It's not good enough. Like not not even by the standards of what we come to expect from, you know, the the team that would go on to make the Persona games, but like the genre as a whole. Yeah. Since we've we've kind of got a handle on um how we feel, I think, about the uh, the aesthetic and kind of the surroundings of the game. Uh, let's move on to what actually happens within the game. This is um where I think maybe we're all going to be a little well, I don't know. Maybe Josh has like a an encyclopedic knowledge of exactly what happens in this game, but I don't think that I do. So um, we're going to do our best um, and talk a little bit about the story and the characters. Um, there's not many characters. We've kind of alluded to this already, but most of what happens in this game, given that it starts with the end of the world, is most of humanity is just straight up gone. The people who survive are the ones who are... Uh, they're kind of important by virtue of they're the only ones there other than the demons. And they all kind of go off in their own directions to remake the world in their own image. And I, I don't like any of these characters and I'm not sure that you're really supposed to. So um, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to go through, um, I don't want to go through these one by one, but I would like to um, ask you guys if you felt that there was anyone who stuck out. Are there any of these characters that you actually like? Well, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna posit a fe- a, a theory Please. for you. Um, th- this game doesn't care about characters. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it, I would it agree. doesn't it do- it doesn't care about people. Um, it these characters all represent a philosophy, an idea, a concept, but they are not truly three dimensional people in their own right. Um, I know that the um, the true ending, some of the, the the gameplay to get the true ending um, actually expands on some of these characters and offers more details. I'm going to be honest, I didn't go for it because it meant playing more of the game, which I didn't <laughs> want to do. Um, so, Josh, just um, to say as well, because like, I think this is a really important thing. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with with that concept, and I think it's kind of highlighted by the fact that they and and this is an unfortunate use of the word, given that this proper noun has a term in the game. But they all look like mannequins. They look like mm. vessels, you know. They look like approximations of humans rather than um, actual humans that see, like appear to be freshed out. And and we'll get into mannequins, I'm sure, as we kind yeah. of approach some of the story. But like the, the the thing again, it's the comparison to Persona. But we're just gonna do this all the time. Like those games explore themes and ideas through their characters as well right like it it it, it, there are characters that represent a in in persona 5 specifically like there there are characters that represent like an aspect of society that the creators of that game don't like something that we you know should be examined or blah, blah 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 but they're also characters in their own right right like you know Anne fully like by the end of Persona 5. You know Mitsuru in Persona yeah, 3 fully by the right. end of the... Shush. shush. Um, <laughs> and, um, it, like, d- 
do do you feel do you feel like any of these characters are three dimensional? Like do you, do you truly like do these characters have life beyond stating beyond basically representing and and you know arguing a case for their philosophical value that they represent? Do, do they really have life beyond that? So I think part of the problem that I had with them was that whereas in Persona you kind of get at least some background, even if it's in retrospect, like you know kind of where these characters are coming from. You have absolutely no perspective on any of these characters whatsoever before they become the representative for their particular reason, capital R reason. Like, the beginning of the game is the protagonist comes to this hospital with his two friends. There's Isamu, who is the Joker, and then there's Chia lowercase J Joker. <laughs> this is getting complicated. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's Isamu, who is kind of the snarky Joker dude, and then there's Chiaki, who is the girl, and that's it. You, the, yeah. the world ends, and then you don't see them, you don't know anything about where they came from, who they were, what is driving them, until you meet them, and they all of a sudden have lost an arm and are inheriting the 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 soul Chucky of turns into a libertarian all of a sudden one man's libertarian is another man's fascist <laughs> yeah. i think i think leo what you just said probably explains why the only character and i'm looking at the list and i'm trying to um to to kind of scour the memory banks i mean i like thor in this game but I mostly just like the character <laughs> design of thor um i think Thor's it's good. Yeah. it's i think thor's awesome um but I, that's the only character that I really connected with at all was Futamimi, Futamimi, mm. who is the kind of like the religious leader of the mannequins, because you yeah. learn a little bit about what he stands for and like how he's trying to just kind of bring his his group of um, essentially soulless people if uh, it, like and bring them happiness and kind of build them a society like like that was like the only one because you'd get to the points in the game right where it would ask you to make a choice do you want to support this person or go against them which would either lead to a fight or a non-fighter basically and the only one of those i didn't choose immediately fight was his because i was like ah, oh, this guy's just trying to do some cool stuff for his people he's just trying to build a city start a new life like I, yeah, they're like, we just want people to leave us alone so that we can live and not right. be persecuted yeah. and slaves all the time. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> yeah. cool. And then they don't actually let you side with them. Right. You cannot side against them, but that's not the same thing. Yeah. And that, and so I think, but even that was just, it wasn't like a full backstory or full yeah. arc that led to that. It was just a, just the morsel of like, you know, character. I was like, yeah, that's my man, you know? Like, so it, it was a difficult thing to not, um, like I think, and, and this is going to sound so reductive and I'm not trying to be this way, but when I was trying to think about this earlier, I was having trouble remembering the characters based on, I couldn't remember. I was having trouble remember their names, remember what their, what their choices were. I was being like, okay, one person has one, one arm, the other person gets barfed on the face by God and looks like Rorschach <laughs> from the Watchmen. Uh -huh. So uh, Josh mentioned something there about how, you know, these, these people are fairly vacuous and, and actually the i think the only time that they become distinct and of any real importance is actually when they tie themselves to uh i guess it's like an elder god that really kind of defines their quote reason and, and reason in this case is basically like their motivation or the the kind of type of society that they want to live in you know like 
that there really aren't of any importance but i think there's an element of like that's quite a subversion of like jrpg kind of stereotype in that this game is a game and and not to jump too far ahead and i'm sorry if this is a point somebody was going to come to a little bit later the amount of time that you spend in this game when compared to the amount of actual exposition in the story is wild like i think at one point i went something like six hours of grinding before i got the next beat of plot which is such a kind of subversion of generally how jrpgs go where you basically are forced into like long expository moments where characters just sit and talk about things that really aren't of any importance but help i'm replaying kind of persona 5 and i think i went about two hours in the middle of that just putting my controller down and watching the, and watching plot precisely and i think there's almost like maybe uh sorry to do this but maybe the the producers think that there's some sort of elegance in this kind of like minimalist storytelling and they're really nailing a point but i think there's so much that distracts from this uh within the game mechanically storytelling visually yeah. that just kind of detract just generally just spoils it so so the minimal storytelling can work but you have to replace it with some other kind of interest right so like um i think in in some of the show notes there was reference to the approach to storytelling maybe being a source of inspiration for the soul series right but the soul series can be that minimal with its plot can be that minimal with its characters and stuff like that because there is so much to interact with there's so much uh, granularity with the detail of the world, the different kind of interactions. You're you're always having different encounters, different set pieces. Like you're not repeat. Like even if you're fighting the same enemies, it's never the same kind of encounter, right? Like it's a different setup, it's a different um, approach, it's a different level. Um, that's where the novelty comes from. Whereas with a JRPG, you kind of just accept with with this kind of style of game that you're going to be repeating a lot of encounters. You're going to be fighting a lot of the same enemies. And the plot is the novelty. The plot is the string that's, you know, pulling you along. Without that, there's no string, like, uh, either from the plot or the or the play, right? Like, that's why I think it falls down, because it's a mismatch of, uh, of uh, different components. I found it very difficult to get engaged with any of this just because I, I I didn't fully latch on to any of the characters because they weren't really character. I mean, they were characters, but they were more representatives of kind of different branches of the storyline, as we talked about before. And I don't think that the their motivations were maybe adequately differentiated or explained or I, I i just didn't quite get why for example uh and i'm i, I hope that i am am getting this straight but um so isamu wants a world in which everybody can do their own thing and everybody can be just kind of cordoned off and left by themselves Whereas Hikawa, who is one of the first um, kind of people, he's I, I think he's behind the uh, initial conception or setting it off, at least. He wants a world of silence where everything is still all the time. And I'm not sure I understand the key difference between those two. So and I don't know if it matters. Yeah, so 
Isamu is literally everybody exists in isolation. Not in the mm -hmm. so so the distinction is that with Hikawa, what he wants is everybody exists in their own independent version of the world where they are kind of the center of the universe. All other beings exist in not service, but almost in service of that person's existence to create a, a world which is peaceful by virtue of the fact that it is kind of very favorable towards that individual, whereas Isamu's is more you will be on your own universe. And because you're alone, you can't make any trouble with anybody else. Jobs are good and look, you've achieved real peace. It's That's a very Persona 5 Royale kind of question, specifically Royale, um, which is another kind of like thread that ties Persona, obviously, to Shin Megami Tensei 3. And it's only after I kind of played the two, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, no problem. They're right there. My problem is with Chiaki, who is kind of like the class... Um, almost like the valedictorian. I hope I'm using that word right because it doesn't necessarily exist in the in the UK, British. Um, like, she is basically, like, the fascist. Um, her idea is, like, the will of the the strong, you know, that the, only the strongest survive. She's basically Mussolini in the Shin Megami Tensei universe. And then she goes around murdering all of the mannequins because they're weak. They're almost like a, a kind of vestigial spirit hangover of... Um, people in Tokyo who died during the apocalypse that were reformed into these kind of like vessel-like beings when the world came about. And that was the ending that I actually ended up going for because I found it was the path of least resistance and not un unlike what Josh was saying, I wanted to be done with this game as quickly as possible. But there's nothing endearing about any of those outcomes. There's nothing that made me think I would be satisfied having one of these outcomes over the rest of them. And they are kind of base three. They are, I know you went for the kind of true demon ending. Is that correct? I did, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I would like to, I, I would like to see um, if uh, Josh, if you and Brian, if you got any, what you guys did, because the one that I did was kind of a, a um, like an extra. I, I, it might not have even been available on the initial thing. It might have been a DLC type of. It wasn't DLC for this game, but so... it was. There were there were different <laughs> versions of the original game, and um, some of them had slightly different. Uh, content so I, into them, but yes, uh, I'm interested. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to belittle my experience. I put a lot of time into this game, right? But I got to the top of the tower, climbed all the way through, fought all the things, did all the stuff, met God, and God was basically like, "Now nah, you didn't really pick a choice, so you're not going to get anything you want." And then the credits just started rolling, <laughs> and I <Okay>. said, "Yes." Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, um, my, my choice at the end was a no choice. They basically told me I had failed everyone by not committing to one side or another. I hadn't done any of the, is it the Katawagi events? I hadn't done enough of them in one favor of one or another. And basically the game was just like, by making no choice, by making no choice, you have made your choice. You don't get to do anything here. Credits rolled. And normally in a JRPG, that would have made me so mad that I had like, screwed it up or I had, you know, fumbled, uh, you, know, you know, at some point and needed to go back and, and revisit it. And honestly, when that happened, I would just kind of was like, yeah, it feels about right. That feels about right where I'm at. So can I just say one of the big kind of almost like like elements of praise that this game got was in its replayability, <laughs> like yeah. in going through and collecting many different uh, outcomes of this and it's another instance of like the dissonance between the critical praise that this game got and the pragmatic 
the pragmatics of actually playing this game and achieving some of the outcomes that it expects you to. Your save file does note which endings you've gotten. Mm. It has like little icons on it. Anyway, I'm sorry. Josh, what, what did you get ending-wise? Um, so I got one of the endings associated with um, Uradia. Is that how you pronounce it? The Rorschach. Something like that. Yeah, Rorschach. the, the, the iridescent blob that attaches itself to Yuko, yes. Yeah, um, so I got the, the ending where everything is uh, terrible and it's dying and uh, the world is just going to just be dead. Uh, so there's two endings associated with uh, that character, right? There's the freedom ending, and then everything goes to hell ending. I managed to get the everything goes to hell ending, which, to be honest with you, I prefer because I feel like the freedom ending is a cop-out. Um, I, I don't like the idea that the Earth just resets and everything goes back to the way it was. I feel like it betrays the bravery of the initial, you know, the initial concept but yeah, so but like my ending was a little bit uh, depressing. It, it's the uh, Mario two ending, isn't it? You know, hey, it was all a dream. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Yeah, less, thirty yeah. hours counted for nothing. Yeah. So what I did, um, I went a little bit um, harder on the ending, um, and I could do this. I would like to emphasize because I was using a walkthrough. Like I don't think that this is something that I would have gone for had I not had the ability to kind of uh, to kind of guide myself through with that um but what i got was the true demon ending uh and the true demon ending is kind of the extra ending sort of so i, I don't think we've talked about uh lucifer much uh lucifer only mean... every day <laughs> oh yeah no i mean not lucifer in the game i should say oh, okay. um yes. yeah, yeah yeah so Pretty early on in the game, you meet a lady with a little blonde kid. The little blonde kid is the one who feeds you the uh, the Magatama, which is like this little demon insect thing that gives you your powers. Um, later on, you see this same woman again, except now she's older, and the man the man with her is uh, is the same little kid, except now he is an old man. He's in a wheelchair, and um, you know he he is um clearly important uh you you find out um I, I don't actually remember when you find this out is this something that you find out through the course of the normal game or do you have to get it from the labyrinth of amala that he's yeah, it's at the bottom of the amala network yeah, yeah you have to go through the labyrinth i was watching uh some things today looking up to it and um it's actually possible to miss some of those yeah. fights for the menorahs as well if mm -hmm. you don't kind of know where to go to trigger them. So you, it's possible you could play through the entire game trying to do that, but you just don't trigger all of the fights to get yeah. you all the pieces to do the thing. Yeah, so um, there is a section, what we're talking about here, called Labyrinth of Amala, completely optional. You are funneled into, I think, the first level as part of the story, but you don't ever actually have to do it. Uh, you can continue onward and just never even think about it. But it is a it is a labyrinth. It's a real it's a real pain. It's pretty rough. There's a lot of um, traps and tricks, and um, you think that the main game is bad for funneling you through labyrinths. This is that except more. Uh, so if you decide that you want to go through the Labyrinth of Amala, 
Um, you do so, you unlock different floors by fighting various different um, kind of mega enemies uh, throughout the game. The first one of these, which is the one that funnels you in in the first place, is the Matador, who I mentioned previously, who is part of the storyline. I don't know if you hit any of the rest of them as part of the story or if he's the only one. Um, but so either I, oh, I'm pretty sure it's him and the Pale Rider are the only two you absolutely fight. Um, okay. But there's some that are triggered in similar areas, like the um, there's one at the bottom of the stairs of the Assembly of Nihilo, if I'm pronouncing that mm -hmm. correctly, where you have to come back for it, though. Like, it won't just yeah. be there. On and there's the one in the hospital round. also, which, yeah, like, yeah. you would never know. Like, right, right. why are you going to go back there? You're not. Um, but if you... You unlock the floors by uh, finishing these kind of sub-bosses that are scattered throughout the world. And as you do, um, I, I don't recall who it was that mentioned that there's a lot of story that's actually chunked into the Labyrinth of Amala. And yeah, that's absolutely true. As you go through, it gives you a lot more of the backstory that you would miss. So you learn that you learn about the uh, the world coming to an end. You learn that this is not the only world that this has happened to. You learn um, you know, very, various tidbits about what actually is going on in the world and why um, people are, are fighting to basically bring it back the way that they think it should be. If you make it all the way down to the bottom of the Labyrinth of Amala, you find out that the old guy in the wheelchair and the young boy from the beginning of the game are Lucifer. Yes, that Lucifer. And this has all been a test from Lucifer to see if you are worthy to rebuild the world in your own image. So you can tell him yes, or you can tell him no. And if you tell him yes, which I did, then he says, okay, cool, you're mine now, and uh, you proceed through the rest of the game. Uh, then when you get to the end of the game, you have an additional boss fight after the uh, normal final boss fight in which you fight Lucifer, and he is tough. I was playing on Merciful Difficulty, and it still took a very long time. Hmm. If you um, do make it through your boss fight with Lucifer after having done the entire Labyrinth of Amala, you get an ending that is basically just Lucifer saying like, yep, you're worthy. And then you kind of do like a, a cool strut into the camera with a bunch of other demons behind you. And that's the end. But anyway, that's what I did. I um, decided to become the demon lord of the world. And um, I went through that entire labyrinth. It's long <laughs> fermi's parasol from the forum says the only false note is the quotes happy canon ending where everything is reset with the protagonist awakening as if from a dream back to the start of the story if nocturne is anything it is an allegory for the decisions we make every day about the ethical codes we live by death and rebirth in the endless cycle of samsara but never returning to the past except in dreams all right we're going to talk about the gameplay I know we've all been waiting for this. So, um, where, where to start? So, we, uh, we are pretty familiar, I think, those of us that have played Persona games previously, with kind of the basics of this. It's a little bit different than, um, than maybe some of the later games turned out to be. But this did introduce the press turn system. And what that actually does is you get a certain number of actions per turn. And your actions are what determines kind of how many times you can then act again. If an enemy is vulnerable or weak to certain types of attacks, 
then you will get more attacks to kind of spread out between you and your uh, your demon partners. If they are not weak to those attacks, if they block them or if they are resistant to them, then you may just lose your turn entirely. Same thing applies to both the uh, the enemies that you're fighting as well as to your own party. So you can kind of see the beginnings of the persona weakness systems uh, in, in there. But this is kind of the, uh, as I understand it, this is kind of the first time that that really came into play in one of these games. Um, there is also a fair amount of character customization because you get different magatama, which is the thing that Lucifer stuffs down your throat at the beginning of the game, uh, which will give the player character both different strengths and weaknesses and also will allow them to learn different abilities so that you can kind of trick out your character with the things that you want and uh, delete the things that you don't. Um, there's also a demon negotiation system, uh, which you may be familiar with if you have played Persona 5, in which you can talk to certain enemies and they will either join you, not join you, give you money, that kind of thing. And uh, demon fusion, of course, we all, lo we all love demon fusion. I love Demon Fusion. You love Demon Fusion. <laughs> How do we feel about Demon Fusion? Brian? Um, well, I love Demon Fusion, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I, the the thing that I found the most interesting about the actual gameplay was the customization with the Magatama. Um, this became much less uh, important for me when I eventually dialed down the difficulty, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I was finding early on, and I think I ended up finding most all of them. There's a, like a little grid sheet that you kind of fill in as you as you get them, um, where I would be rethinking fights based on which Magatama had had um, equipped. And then when you would equip them, you'd literally see it does a great job of kind of visualizing it for you on your little profile stat sheet of like where your strength and where your luck and all these things are going to kind of adjust based on you swapping out your Magatama. So. Um, I thought that was a uh, pretty interesting. It felt like um, almost like a job system in a sense, where like you know different, obviously different job skills and different JRPGs have different things. And um, yeah, I I found it to be at least up until the difficulty kind of started affecting my playthrough uh, to be pretty enjoyable. At least thinking about how I was building my character over the over the course of time. Because one of the things this game also lets you do is it lets you apply skill points into whatever skills you want to focus on too. So you could apply a bunch of skills into strength and then use a Magatama that might boost up some uh, some agility, some other parts of your uh, character to, to make yourself a little bit more well-balanced than your actual skill point spending was making you. So you could you could kind of play around with that in a number of ways to... Uh, to suit however you decide to do things. I am always a glass cannon, as Rich and I have discussed many times. Strength all the way, all the time. Yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really know. I think the Preston system is is fairly interesting. Like, really, it's about like exploiting the weakness of the um, enemy so as to push their turn back and therefore buy yourself more turn. If you've played Persona, uh, you'll know it very well. It's it's repurposed and reused in that. Um, in that those games specifically in persona 5 um i think what it's missing though um uh and and sorry to keep doing this but um i, I really missed the all-out attack um that you would get from persona 5 i think that would have made it slightly more balanced um than than what it ended up being um yeah i mean it's functional i wouldn't say it's enjoyable it feels very much like what you know not what you can do um which is not necessarily something that endears itself to me in a game 
Um, uh, the other thing I would say is, of course, this game relies a lot more heavily on status effects than um, other kind of contemporary games, uh, or rather kind of uh, of its games in, in those areas. Specifically, like, it is entirely possible in this game that one-hit kills are going to kill you, which, unlike a Final Fantasy, for example, with Break and with uh, Stone, they're, they're a lot less kind of uh, reliable. Yeah, I, I will say that I found myself using... And I, depending on which Persona game it is, I this is also a thing. But I, it was almost, it was almost necessary, mandatory, whatever to have just status attacks. Uh, and and I don't even mean like stone or sleep or whatever, but upping defense or lowering defense for bosses or mm. lowering their attack like that was part of my boss strategy even playing on a lower difficulty as i was like if you don't do that kind of stuff it becomes much more difficult to um to kind of get through those especially those larger fights with any kind of consistency i found yeah there's that one section uh, at the top of one of those pyramids that i was talking about before uh where you're basically fighting uh, it's the classic, it's kind of been used in a bunch of JRPGs, a lot of Persona games too, where like you, they'll have kind of little spawn enemies in front of you, and the only way you can attack the big boss is kind of clear out everybody all at the same time. And if you're not using those like lower defense attacks or, you know, kind of status effects, you're like, what are they called? Like Matakana and, and those those different ones that'll, you know, reduce the defense of everybody you're fighting and things like that. Um, it, it becomes some of those fights, some of those fights will just become unmanageable without that, or some in some cases completely unbeatable. I, I think this game has a bunch of systems that I I end up liking their later executions of a lot. Like when they crop up in Persona, I I really love the the way that series manages extra turns, and I really love how that series um, manages strengths and strength and weaknesses, and even like buffing and debuffing all of that. Stuff. The way those systems interact in this this game is infuriating, and <laughs> and specifically in the way that the enemies and the bosses manipulate that. The reason why the Matador is such like a wolf for people is because he. <sighs> Sorry, I almost swore. Um, <laughs> he stacks, um, like uh, he increases ev evasion and hit rate. Right, so it gets to a point where you. you unless you're like debuffing him like you you can't hit him and he can hit you every time um that's that's what's frustrating and then there's another and i've blanked on the name of it but there's another boss later on that can that, I, that there are enemy, enemies that could do this as well but it's specifically frustrating with this boss who gifts gifts himself more more turns um and there are what, a couple that do that yeah yeah inevitably what happens is uh, it, it just buffs itself to an incredible degree where it, it just, it's just absolutely feels like a war of attrition. Um, and that's not a fun form of difficulty. What's great about Persona is that it's like high damage, but also in both directions, right? The, the big numbers in both directions. Like when you hit an enemy weakness, it's like, oh, they're down. But when the, an enemy hits your weakness, oh, you're down. Oh, my God. That's where the drama and tension comes from. Mm -hmm. But you're not left in this constant state of 
grinding against the the stone wall of an enemy which which is what a lot of the bosses feel like in this game um there's a balance to be struck like i want to care about the enemies evasion rate i want to care about all of that stuff i don't want it to be such a barrier that it just it saps all the life and fun out of the fight like it, it, it i just think like the number whatever numbers need to, to be tweaked on the normal difficulty setting uh, they're just way off and then you switch it to merciful and it makes it pul- it makes the difficulty poultry like it just removes the interest in the combat system yeah. entirely so your your choice in terms of difficulty of this game is an interesting system that i feel is poorly executed and frustrating versus almost non-existent challenge it's just that there's a balance to be struck that this game doesn't find um uh, i think it was i can't remember if it was richard josh that mentioned this before about the um one hitting characters and the thing that the combat does in this game um and we likened it to the drama of a persona fight it was josh josh was liking it to the drama of you know oh this knocked me down knocked me that in the persona games particularly the boss fights i'm always thinking about can i get through one more turn without healing like i look at my hp i'm thinking about the average amount of damage they are doing to me what do i need to do like can i get through one more can i do another round of damage before healing and i felt that way in this game but on every turn because it felt like on any turn they could it could just decide to one shot me and be done with me in any of those boss fights. I got to a point, um, probably about ten hours in, maybe maybe more, where I was going to the warehouse just outside of Ginza to find that like underground passage, and I was looking for it. I, I was having trouble navigating the overworld just because it's a little different, not too hard once you kind of get it figured out or use a walkthrough that definitely helps. Um, and I lost about forty five minutes of just like level up progress because I just went down a road that was going the wrong direction, and all of a sudden, all the enemies were 25 levels higher than me, and I couldn't mm. run, and that was it. Like, I just, just, it just, and they just one-shotted me, and I just remember thinking, wow, this game did absolutely nothing to stop me from losing all this progress and gave me no chance, and I, I was probably about another hour or so <clears throat> of fighting against that feeling, and I think I lost a fight. It might it might even been my fault at that point. I'm like, nope, I'm done. I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I, I, I'm not sure what this says about the the gap between the merciful difficulty and the normal difficulty. I only died once um, during the course of the game, but the time that I died was in the labyrinth of Amala. There was a cursed floor that every couple of steps would half your health, and I got back attacked in the middle of one of those floors and could not run. So, I mean, just, I I don't know what you were supposed to do, especially if you weren't, I, I mean, I, I can only imagine that on more difficult settings that that had to happen a lot more frequently. But just, you just get punished if you do something wrong, and they don't tell you what's wrong until you're being punished for it. So, eh. <laughs> again a game that is 20 years old that feels 40 years old to me like it, that's just part and parcel of games of the 1980s like you're going to get shafted at some point and you're going to have to basically deal with it like and at that point we'd had games that had, yeah 
I make a broken record. We finessed this problem out. We've worked out solutions to this particular problem in games before that. Um, is what I would say. C can we can we talk about demon negotiation for a little bit? Oh, please, please. Um, I guess like if I'm opening up this conversation, I I don't want to sort of posit a question, but I, I don't know about you guys. I guess the question is, did anybody really care about the demons? Because they're kind of disposable. Like, there's no real sort of attachment to the demons that I was using throughout the game. You end up basically bringing on board into your team the demons that you fought. Um, I don't know. I just felt like some of these were just fairly kind of like temporary. Struggled to feel anything towards them. Really didn't particularly care if one member of the, well, whatever demon I'd caught or negotiated with or fused was in my team or not it, the only character i really cared about with was probably the the main character and you know but didn't particularly care about him too much either i mean i i didn't but i i don't i don't think that's a crime that uh this game is solely guilty of like because you, you negotiate with demons in persona 5 too and it's not like i care about them either they're just kind of fodder for fusion um but that but that doesn't matter because you've got other party members right like you've got other people yeah. with you that fill that void whereas here you're on your own and because of that the lack of any kind of character stands out more even though it's like in so in a lot of ways persona 5 just does the same thing and it's just as guilty it doesn't stand out as much because you find that value elsewhere where you go looking for it here and you just don't find it it's kind of a situation, or at least it was for me, where like I I just wanted, I just wanted the demons that looked cool. So I I mean mm, I'm yeah. I'm a collector. We're not going to say hoarder. Um, but I I was I was drawn in at least a little bit by the um the the kind of Pokemon catch them all aspect of the demon thing. So I mean when a demon popped up that I didn't already have in my my um what's it called the uh the compendium, compendium. Yeah. yes um i i would at least try to get them on my team but i had a really difficult time telling what exactly they wanted at any given time so another example of where it's just basically about not like not your interpretation just simply what you know like and this is this feels very persona one and persona two well, yeah, see, no, that's the thing though that. i I don't think, and, and uh, unless I just missed this, and if I did, then shame on me, but, uh, but in Persona 1 and 2, you at least get a little bit of knowledge about the demons. Like, you'll get what their kind of, um, their personality type is. It still didn't make sense. Is. <laughs> no, it, it didn't. But if you were to learn that, kind of the internal logic of the game, you could make some guesses about what it was that they wanted. Here, you don't even get that much information. You just kind of get, here's the demon, guess. This is going to sound more pretty damning, but, like, I was, just like you, Leah, I was, like, you know, compendium filler, you know, <laughs> you gotta catch them all, that stuff. And then something broke in me about 15 hours into the game where I just decided that by negotiating, I was spending more time in the battle screens and systems that I just wasn't willing to spend anymore. So I just kind of abandoned it. And it wasn't that I didn't care about 
filling out the compendium or, or you know my fusions and going to that cathedral of whatever it was called um that cathedral you know kind of, of shadow shadow thank you I almost said cathedral of souls but um they <laughs> um yeah they like i just i was never incentivized to do that and i think part of that was me changing the difficulty a choice that i made on my own for sure but i just made a choice at some point during this game that that the next level of systems the next level of interaction was just something the game wasn't really giving me a reason to follow through on. And I, I think that's probably the moment where I really noticed like that, like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really not getting on with this as well as I had hoped because even in games that I'm like a middling interest in, like I, I'm always a fill the whole book type of person, you know? And, and I just couldn't really find a reason to keep going. Of course there is, an advantage to negotiation, not least of which because you can actually get a hold of some some of the, I, I keep wanting to say personas, the demons, uh, yokai, whatever the case may be. Um, it'll give you a full restore sometimes if you've already got that um, particular enemy or they'll just walk away because they already have, you already have one of them in the party. They'll basically disappear. But the, the problem that I've got with that is what difference does that make when the next possible enemy you would get across is also capable of just one hit killing you? Like, it, it's just so punitive, like in in its approach, um, that it just kind of almost makes the the kind of um, elegance of that system matter for nothing. I said, "Cool looking demons." I had, <laughs> I had a big phoenix thing for a while. It was pretty cool, but yeah, I I agree that I just it. Like many Persona games, the ones that you fuse are always going to be better than the ones that you just pick up. But even still, like I did more than I needed to in in that respect. Like I could have, I could have probably left a lot of what I did undone and, and just gone with some of the default demons, and it probably would have been fine on that difficulty level. On that note, um. Unless anybody has anything else specific to talk about uh, with regards to the uh, gameplay elements, uh, I, I just want to... We've talked about this, but not directly yet, I don't think. Um, I, I just I just want to kind of get where we stand on, is this game too hard? Was it too hard at the time? What's the deal? What's the deal with the difficulty <laughs> of, pers of so Persona, of, of Shin Megami Tensei? So d difficulty is an interesting conversation, right? Yes. Because um, I think it's too easy to go, this game is too hard. Because I there are plenty of games that I absolutely adore that are maybe arguably harder than this game is. Um, it's the kind of difficulty that this game plays in that I think is the problem, right? Like, um, I, I think... You know, a lot of us here are, are, you know, fans of what from from software make, um, and maybe with the exception of Sekiro, uh, Rich. But um, <laughs> like uh, with with most of the other games, like it's it's always um, it always feels like you are dealing out as much damage as the enemies are for the most part. If that makes sense, like there's there's an equality to the battlefield um, in that game that that um, even though an enemy can kill you in two hits, you can kill some enemies in two hits too. Um, and your choice of, like, um, uh, 
approach, choice of weapon, everything impa- impacts that. What Rich was hitting at before is that you can walk into a scenario in uh, a, fa- a fight, sorry, in this game, and you have no idea what you're going up against, and there's no way you can prepare, nothing that you can do, no foreknowledge that you could have that would prepare you for being punched in the nose oh sorry (laughs) Um, maybe on the repeat encounter you know yes but not first time round um and i feel like that is the difference right that is the fundamental difference between difficult games that feel fun and difficult games that feel frustrating is that i could have done something I could, if I had only noticed the blood on the floor before that trap, I could have, I could have avoided it. If I had only saw that archer up there, I could have done something. But can you see something before it happens here? Can you prepare? Really? The answer is often no, and that's why it drives you up the wall. Maybe it's less of a question of difficulty and more a question of fairness. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say uh, josh already eloquently said a lot of the things that i was thinking i the thing i would like to add to this is the not necessarily the difficulty because obviously we're not going to solve the difficulty in games question here uh between the four of us but it's the frequency in which it presents you with these things um even those games that josh was referring to and, and other games that are just you know known as like really uh painfully hard video games this game just it's just relentless in a way that is not engaging and this game seems to create difficulty in sometimes just presenting roadblocks in very mundane and frustrating situations to the point even leading up to and including just the frequency of battles and in those battles they can turn so quickly one way or another that it feels like at any moment your party can just be wiped. And and there are games where I feel exhilarated by the fact that at any moment anything like that could happen. But the way that those, the way that that difficulty presented in this game did nothing but just make me want to do something else. And that's the great thing about like a, and we always talk about FromSoft games, right? We joke about it. But like, a boss fight where I feel like I just got absolutely wrecked, beat my head against the wall. I'll I'll leave it and be like, oh, that was unfair. That was that. But I'll be thinking about it, right? I'll be thinking about it after, like, oh, well, if I did that, or well, actually, if I did that, you know, it it plays back in my head. And this game, the only thing that played back in my head was like, woof, I have to come back and play it again. And that never felt right. And I did not regret changing the difficulty one iota. Did it made the make the game simplified and reduce its impact in a lot of ways absolutely but there was no regret in that decision for me it's 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 that like the frequency yeah that that would have been the point that i've made and i guess the only thing i can add on top of it is is something that i mentioned a bit earlier it's it's relentless because it never gives you space like every single room in this game has random battle encounters every single room there is no gap where you are safe where you can just stop and talk and shop and like i don't know about you guys the amount of times that i will have died between going between a shop and then a, a temple to go and forge a new persona and i'm like this this isn't my housekeeping is a problem here me trying to basically just menu is becoming a bit of an issue here because i can't yeah. find myself 
into a position where I'm ready to go. Like everything is is so relentlessly just determined to, to end your experience. It's no fun. Yeah. The, 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 you know, games that are more uh, specifically designed to be difficult have peaks and troughs, right, of intensity. Um, e- even Dark Souls has quiet time, right? Like, even Dark Souls gives you pause to pause for breath. Like, I, I guess, like, the comedy comparison I would use is instead of, like, in Dark Souls where, you, you, you know, once you've defeated Ornstein and Smo, that's it, you're done. This is a game where Ornstein and Smo can just jump out at you at a corridor <laughs> at any moment, mm-hmm. uh, just as you're about to sit at a bonfire, just before you're about to to uh you know forge a new blade with the the blacksmith like that's what it feels like yeah. right like yeah. it feels like at any moment like the, the, the like <laughs> you're just going to be slammed in the face like you can't prepare for it i think about this a lot when we were talking recently with a couple friends of mine about the, the punch out series and 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 uh the punch out for the wii with the title defense mode and how difficult that can get and i was thinking about that in relationship to this game uh, and trying to make another comparison that isn't just a dark souls comparison because i just do that all the time is in those games when when those those frustrations hit and those real brick walls hit there's still a satisfying way to measure progress oh i got it i got it down to this much hp this time or like wow that bar was so close or like wow i if i use this estes flask uh, you know i had an extra estes flask if i would use it earlier i would have had a chance you know things like that and there's no way to measure your progress in the fights of these games. There's no way to be like, well, I did that one better than the last one. It just feels like the RNG got you or, you know, well, I I guess I needed to do a full heal before this one attack because I hadn't seen it before. It just doesn't feel like you can measure any sense of I'm getting better. Because even the most difficult games, if you can feel yourself getting better, that's normally enough to keep me going. I, I guess my question then is... If if this has always been a game that has 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 had kind of a, a an impact in that you can't really predict what's going to happen, would we if if we had played this for the first time in two thousand three or or two thousand four, would we maybe have a different a different thought process when it came to that? Like, is this is this a pro- uh, a product of its time? I-, I think is what I'm getting at here. Is there any of that in here, or is that just an excuse? <laughs> no, I I feel like th- this game is as much as it's well regarded by its fans, it's still niche, right? And I feel like that that speaks to the the kind of divisive quality that this game probably had back then, but just didn't have the notoriety to cause that discourse to to happen right like i think this is a device this is a game that's going to divide people the people that love it absolutely adore it and you know go with god and all that all opinions are subjective etc etc but i i i feel like what you're just maybe describing is that online the people talking about it are the people who love it i i don't think because there's a lack of negativity that um that you know that that necessarily means that the positive opinion is widely held i just don't think this game is played enough by enough people for the kind that kind of debate to to crop up i think if more people played it back in the day there would be a much more 
I think the the variety of opinions would be much more apparent. I think the 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 discussion is being dominated by those who who discovered it and stuck with it and loved it. Um, um, so yeah, I don't know. I I I think you hit right on it there, Josh. It's that like you know the people that are going to talk about this game the most are its fans, and I think that's awesome. You know, I mean, if you played this game and it spoke to you and, and all the systems and the difficulty did a lot for you. I think that's great. I've had games in the past like that, um, that maybe the, the, the majority of people would not in, have enjoyed, or maybe that even didn't get reviewed by many outlets. Cause it was an indie game or if it was a, you know, just kind of like a, a, uh, an obscure game that not a lot of people had heard of that. I found this like love for. And then if you go and if I look for that, Google search any of those games, I'm going to find people that feel the same way as I do about that. And, and I think that's great. I just don't, I think that if I had picked this up and in, in, at the time it came out, I think I probably would have hit the same brick walls that I hit now for me. But that, I feel like, like you said, all opinions are subjective. So I think that just, it boils down to what I like in a game. And that's certainly evolved over the years, but I still think I wouldn't have found the fun back then either. I I mean it's it's I think it's evident in the fact that both myself and Leah tried to play the original PS2 version and then just stopped, right? And I I think that's what that's what's happening is the people who don't like this game just don't don't finish it. Uh we we just happen to be a collection of people that don't like this game but through you know obligation to this this uh, podcast recording have finished it. Um, so, and I, I have to believe we are actually a relatively small group of people in the, you know, in the wider player base. I think the majority of people who feel the way that we do about this game probably stopped at the Matador or stopped at a later Hmm, wall of difficulty. I, I think we are in a, we are in a minority here, I think. Yeah, I've asked. I've asked myself this question and I've, I've certainly asked you this question um, and I hate to answer your question with a question, but really, I guess for me, the, the conversation is how can so many people experience a game and, and come out with positive feelings in a way that I can't? And, and and it's obviously kind of an arbitrary question. It doesn't necessarily need an answer, but in pursuit of that question, one thing I did do is go to some of the aggregated websites and, and just try and understand what the motivations were and you know it would be absurd to go through and and quote individual people because there's such a range of of feelings but i think one thing that was really kind of striking to me was that the kind of continuity in terms of scoring between western media and eastern media was like really similar so you've got people from completely different cultures with completely different expectations, definitely different relationships with the Megami Tensei timeline and series that are, are both coming at it with the same outcome. And I can only think that really what reviewers were doing was latching on to things that felt very, very radical at the time, like the uh, the plot, like the kind of existential questions about societies, like what it means to, to kind of grow up after... Um, uh, like a nuclear apocalypse, like those themes seem to have resonated and seem to have permeated in the review scores in a way that didn't necessarily detract from from some of the the, the stories. But um, yeah, I mean, not to crave what Josh is saying, I, I do get the sense that maybe it's one of those games that you only ever hear 
extreme positive feelings about or extreme negative feelings about because those who kind of are relatively ambivalent might not feel compelled to kind of come forward and give an opinion. And I always thought that you, Josh, and Leah hadn't finished this game when it first came out just because of your general weakness. (laughs) I am bad at video games. That's, you know, that's generally been proven. Uh, But uh, I, I mean, that, what Rich was saying, that kind of drives into a little bit of how what I wanted to wrap up with before we uh, listen to a little bit of listener correspondence, which is why why we think that people do like this game so much. I mean, is it is it mostly a a a matter of kind of retrospective? Like, do they just have that nostalgia for it? Is it because people just really want something that's difficult and and that they're going to be able to keep in their in their not in their backlog necessarily but on their plate for a long amount of time and just kind of really dig in and get the puzzles figured out for themselves and i I just it's not that i can't fathom how somebody would like this game that much i just find that it's really interesting that it got such high scores and continues to get such high scores from people despite the fact that we seem to have have one of the greatest rpgs of all time in many a list yeah, and, I, and so to, why? To, to give to give credit where credit is due, yeah. I, I, I I like I I keep make, making reference to like see the seeds of great ideas, like the 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 starting point, like like I feel like it'd be unfair to say that this game doesn't have thoughts on design, thoughts concepts that are interesting, that are compelling, but. It's the starting point that's interesting, and I, I, I think I, I, I don't blame people. Um, you know, you know, the, the, so some folks are are driven by different kind of attachment styles, right? Some people are really driven by novelty, right? Um, this game is novel, right? Especially for the time, um, and and there are some cool ideas here that I don't like the execution of, but I certainly recognize them as something that could be potentially compelling that could be potentially and the way the persona series evolves proves that out right like they had something it didn't work out that time but it it did eventually so i i feel like the popularity is maybe due to that that different attachment style people are more drawn to novelty than execution um and recognizing that like there there is something here like there there's there's the beginning of something, even if it's not the 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 final statement, the true final statement of those ideas. Interesting. I mean, in I don't disagree. So this is not a, a kind of an argumentative statement, but to me, this is not that dissimilar. Way like way similar to Shin Megami, uh, Shin Megami Tensei, and Megami Tensei for that matter, like a 1987 game. Like the the seeds of those games were in that game, albeit what. 15 16 years earlier this is just a general iteration and improvement upon that and i think part of the popularity that we're encountering is because of the popularity because of the cultural popularity and the significance of a series of games that came before that and and the comparison i want to draw is just look at how significant dragon quest is in in japan and that is a game that basically began roughly around the same time 1985 6 7 and actually has persisted and became so embedded in Japanese culture 
to an extent that we, we potentially don't have anything that's quite the equivalent of, of what we've got in in kind of western societies i think part of the reason shin megami tensei 3 is so popular is purely because it is another shin megami tensei game and has moderate improvements that make it slightly more um quality of life is a difficult thing to say when we've just rinsed this game for almost two hours at this yeah. point but slightly more agreeable than than it might be um if they were just to kind of trot out another mid to, well early to mid 90s equivalent and and to very briefly add to that too i think that this is one of the first games in that series and in kind of in in the history of of japanese role-playing games being available in america like th- this is a game that would have been very easily i would have very easily thought you would have only been able to import this game you know um you know i spent you know years playing uh fan-made translations of seiken densetsu 3 secret of mana 2 you know and and these things and, and and there was always kind of a longing for it always felt like especially in the west it felt like there was an air of mystery to these games that were too out there for us to be able to play and it, there was always a sense of kind of mystery and and excitement about that. And and then when a game like this comes along, that is so different. And as Josh said, and you said too, Rich had the building blocks of things that we all on this podcast admittedly love now, you know, these series that we love, these characters, these, these systems that we've grown to really enjoy playing with. Um, I do think there's a lot there. And I just, for whatever reason, for the collective group of us, it just, it didn't do what it did for a lot of other people. And I think that's really interesting. And I, and I'm not sure, I again, I already said this, but I don't think my time, I don't think had much to do with that. I don't think I would have liked it back then, but but it does have all those things. And there and this is a game that that suddenly was available and, and then kind of became the bridge to all of these games becoming available, you know, in the West and, and releasing day and date with the West in certain cases. So um, a lot to make fans of the genre excited about. Localized Tokimeki Memorial, you cowards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, I'd like to kind of bring us to a, to a close here with a couple of pieces of correspondence um, that we had, one from the Patreon and one from the forum. First is from Nix Fontana from the Patreon, who says, I played Shin Megami Tensei Three Nocturne on the PS2 back when I was in high school. By this point, I had already played Persona 3 and Persona 4, and I had convinced myself that I could handle whatever Nocturne threw at me. I was wrong. I got my fanny kicked up and down the labyrinth of Amala, among many other places in the game. Whether it's the frequency of random encounters, the utter lack of direction in regards to where you should be going or what your current objective is, and the brutality of some of the bosses and mazes you need to navigate, Nocturne will grind you down very quickly if you are not careful and paying attention. My younger self was prideful and insisted on going through the game without the use of a walkthrough, but that was something I revoked later on in the game. If you're planning to play Nocturne now, I would strongly urge you to use a walkthrough from start to finish as needed. It will make your journey smoother and it'll balance the playing field a bit in response to the lack of quality of life features within the game. In the end, I finished Nocturne, but at the cost of destroying any notion of returning to the game. The gameplay loop grated on me and the story's focus on world building instead of characters left me feeling cold and uninterested in everything that was taking place. The game just wasn't for me, but it taught me a hard lesson in regards to not using walkthroughs and how forcing yourself through entertainment that you do not enjoy tends to invite negativity and resentment that you don't need in your life. Why you shouldn't be on a podcast 101. (laughs) Uh, I'm kidding. And then a third drawing from the forum says, Like most people, I got into the Megaten series through Persona. 
However, in my case, I'm likely one of a handful of people who are excited for Nocturne after playing Persona 2 Eternal Punishment on the PS1 and Machin X on the Dreamcast. I bought it day one, and I was genuinely blown away. This is a game dripping with atmosphere from the very beginning. The character designs are distinct, the music was unlike any other RPG at the time, and the mood was heavy and foreboding. It made Atlas the epitome of cool when this game came out, and it turned a lot of heads toward the company, including mine. The, ga the game was so different and so dark in comparison to other RPGs of the time, discarding most RPG tropes in the first couple of hours of the game and giving you a truly unique idea. You can't save the world, but how will you remake it? I can imagine some complaints about dungeon design, but while some of the dungeons may have been a little dull to navigate, they were so visually interesting to look at I didn't mind. The visual flair of the game is a really important aspect, and I can't stress both how unique and at times breathtaking this game looked. It seemed like everything was carefully chosen. The distinct shading, the specific colors used for dungeons, the lighting, everything has a distinct visual flair, and the game's graphics still hold up today because of it. I can imagine some people might moan about random battles, but the press turn battle system is fun to use and pretty easy to grasp. I do think the reputation this game has for being difficult is mostly overblown. Certain bosses are difficult, Matador, certain en enemies are difficult, and the Amala Labyrinth can be brutal because of the traps. Overall, though, once you find out the, the weakness of an enemy, most battles are fairly straightforward as long as you're paying attention. This is a special game in a special series. It was so unique in its approach and presentation, it was impossible not to become a fan of the series. I bought every Mega Ten game that has come out since Nocturne, even a copy of Persona 1 to complete the collection, and by proxy, most other Atlas games that have come out in the West as well. I've even gone back and played the fan translation of the SNES Mega Ten games. Looking forward to your SMT4, SMT5, Digital Devil Saga, Devil Summoner, Strange Journey, and Etrian Odyssey podcast next year. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's happening, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know. We'll definitely let you know. I had to push for this one, so um, <laughs> I, I just wanted to end this up on, on something that was a little bit more positive because I knew we were going to be slightly down on this. So um, yeah, nice, nice reminder that you know people do enjoy this game, so I'm, I'm happy for them. All right, on the day of recording, we do call for three-word reviews. Follow us on Twitter, at CanaanRince. Lindy Bailey says, Savage Demon Insults. Thomas the Tank M1 says, Soul-Crushing Emptiness. Trinant says, Game Goes Hard. Josh One-on-One -on -one says, Everybody's a Villain. And Pacheco DeJesus says, Law, Neutral, Chaos. All right. So I, I think that we are all kind of in a similar situation here with regard to how we feel about this game, but I had to choose an order. So uh, Rich, will you please share with us what you think of Shin Megami Tensei 3? You can leave out how much you hate me for suggesting this. We already know. No, I can't. Uh, generally, <laughs> Leah, when, when you chose this game for volume 11, I was like, I, I, I really did think you were doing it just to really wind me up and I, I you know spite is a powerful motivator that's the reason we did pyron volume 11 um but yeah the, i you know i played the game was slightly nervous for this recording if i'm being honest i was lamenting ahead of the the show in the kind of virtual green room that I'd, i've never had so many wikier pages open before a recording <laughs> as i have for this one just trying to sort of osmos as much of the really fairly esoteric information as I possibly can. Uh, okay, where do I where do I go? So um I was trying to think of a, a kind of an approximation just to help sort of form a little bit of my thoughts. Like where I land with this is I, I didn't enjoy Shin Megami Tensei 3. In fact I would probably say that I I hate this game. Um which is a powerful thing to say. I think it's a a, a particularly aggressive game 
its sensibilities are mean-spirited it's almost pathological and it's it's approach to basically trying to get the player out of the game as quickly as possible but i'm kind of pleased that i played it and i do think that there's got some interesting things to say i think that the um storyline is, is fairly weak and sparse uh the messages are sincere but actually i think they're pretty ham-fisted think i would probably not recommend this to anybody unless you're kind of very well equipped with how to play the game and what you're in for but what i want to end on in terms of my summary is this like i actually do think that this perhaps has like a cultural significance that i am not getting and i've tried to think of like something that's analogous um and failed what i was trying to sort of emphasize here is what if somebody from a completely different culture tried to explain to me why 1984 was a particularly bad book when they're not getting the kind of cultural significance of of what that's putting down, the themes that it's exploring in the same way that I am not necessarily getting the significance of what Shimigami Tensei 3 is doing. And I think that's possibly where I'm going to land on this. There's just too much disparate views coming together and clashing at the same time my very uh, impatient approach towards playing games um, makes it that it's just a, a completely unagreeable experience. And I keep coming back to it. At this point, we'd had games like Final Fantasy, like Suikoden, like uh, Dragon's Quest, that it evolved over time. It normalized some very kind of like agreeable quality of light things. And Shimigami Tensei 3 just feels like a game that's two decades older than what it was. And and because of that, I just, I just found that it was... Uh, just not fun, so not recommended for me, but I do appreciate that other people might find something in there that I just simply wasn't able to. All right, thank you. Uh, Josh, how about you? There's a lot of seeds of ideas here that I I really like in concept and I like on paper. Um, we already talked about like the, the concept of the conception, the opening... Um, what that sets up, I'm I'm drawn in by that stuff. I I want to like this game, and that's a feeling that I had through from from start to finish. Is that I want to like you, Shin Megami Tensei, but you're making it so hard. Like you are making it so hard to like you, um, because you're so hostile, and they constantly buff bumping into the rough edges of your your personality like i'm constantly being met with vacant stares and and very academic high level philosophical discussions that are not injected with the life and character and humanness that gives those concepts value that makes those value those ideas matter because it's all well and good trying to expand someone's horizons by presenting them these these ideas of um you know fascism or like an absolutely extreme example of like social equilibrium where we're all just like a soupy blackness together like <laughs> it, it, it's it's cool like yeah it, it but like it only means something if you apply that to true humanity and the game fails to do that and then you combine that with a game that's the 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 balance of difficulty the balance of 
whatever it's trying to do with its turn system and um and uh the way characters can buff and debuff each other um it just feels totally um off kilter um i respect what it i respect its ambition but i don't like the game all right thank you josh uh brian yeah, I'm going to take a little different approach here because I can't say anything about the game that Rich and Josh haven't already said. I, I mirror their assessments like to the point of repetition. So I just keep thinking about that forum piece you just read from Third Drawing and that if, and that praise that they had for this game. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but I've been playing a lot of Sonic Frontiers lately. Um, and that's a game that a lot of people have a lot of very strong opinions about, but at every corner of that game, I'm going like, wow, this is a really good idea. And, and you know, this really doesn't move as bad as people think. And like, yeah, the story's kind of whatever. And But I'm really enjoying this kind of the way this is all set up and the freedom that it gives you. And it's kind of taking new ideas and old ideas and I, injecting them with new things and kind of making this kind of this new path forward for this franchise. And I can't help but mirror my thoughts on Sonic for Tears with what, with what Third Drawing just had to say. And I think that this game is just something that isn't for me, but I think it's really cool that they could get all of that out of this game in, in much like a way that I think that all of the criticisms about Sonic Frontiers that I have read and seen are all valid and, and make a lot of sense and I can see them in what I'm playing. But for some reason with me, it just hits different. I just, I'm enjoying it more. I'm seeing the positive more. I'm, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm seeing past the flaws and and feeling like the core of the experience is something that is speaking to me maybe more than it does to other people. And I I can't recommend Shin Megami Tensei 3. I, I really didn't enjoy my time with it, but I see a lot of people that do, and I think that in and of itself holds a lot of value. So I think if you've listened to this podcast all the way through, you already know my opinions on the game, but if your opinions are different or if you've read other opinions that that feel like might might be something up your alley then go ahead give it a try just 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 be on point that that just because something isn't for you doesn't mean it's not for somebody else well put thank you Brian i i think that the strongest thing that i can say about shin megami tensei 3 is that i don't think we get to persona 3 without shin megami tensei 3 or something like it. Like it, it maybe it didn't have to be exactly this, but I think that there had to be some kind of middle point between what the series was before and what it became and what it became was one of my favorite series kind of ever. So I I I feel like I owe it a little bit for that. I would say that if you're coming to this game for the first time now, that it's going to be probably pretty tough to get into uh, as you as you have heard some of our correspondents have some pretty strong feelings for this game and the four of us were left a little bit cold so your mileage definitely may vary if you want to see it and not have a tremendous amount of friction then you can always do what i did which is crank the difficulty way down get a good walkthrough and go if that's not the way that you want to play something just watch a video, maybe. I, I don't know that you... I, unless that's your thing. If you are the person who really wants to just get in there and map things out, I, I, I still feel like there are probably other games that will respect your time more. But 
that that's what you're going in for if you decide to go in this game for the first time now. Um, so I I will say that I am kind of interested in playing particularly Shin Megami Tensei Five because I have heard some things about it that lead me to think maybe it is a little bit easier to pick up in modern times, really. Um, kind of weird to say that 2003 is not modern times, but I, I think you all kind of get where I'm going with that. It's it, it's not a bad game, I don't think, but it is not polished in the way that I want it to be. And maybe that's my problem, but I think it's also at least in large part the game's problem as well. So proceed with caution, I guess is what I'll say. I'm glad it exists and I'm never going to play it again is, is I think, where I land at the end. All right, so um, it just remains for me, Leah, to thank Brian, Josh, and Rich. Rich, who is serving as the second secret host here and, and has helped a lot with uh, some pregame discussion here. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I before we wrap up completely, uh, I, we didn't get to do this last time. So um, I'm going to, Rich, I'm going to toss to you, put you on the spot. Would you like to tell the nice people what Brian and you and I do in our spare time? I mean, I could answer this with anything, really, and it would be uh, quite salacious. But yes, um, Brian, Lear and myself have a, a, a nice, uh, almost spin-off podcast, quite independent of Kane Rinse, of course. Um, I don't know why they've invited me on. I guess it's because I'm pretty consistent. But uh, yeah, uh, the Character Issues podcast, it is It is a podcast in which Brian, Lear and myself take um, three characters, potentially more, on a, a fortnightly basis and run them through the scientific process, which is secretly not very scientific at all, <gasps> and come out with an empirical list of the best and worst characters in video games. It's a fun listen, and uh, yeah, we'd love to have you along. Yeah, Josh has also uh, lent some characters to the list. Um, I, I I meant to look up what episode number that Blasto. was. Blasto. Blasto, yes. Blasto. Blasto. Uh, Blasto's still pretty That'll up there. That'll be number um, one. So, you know, you've, you've, you have contributed to science. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, would be, it would be wonderful if you uh, came along. Uh, we're at Issues Character on Twitter, and we, as Rich, as Rich said, we uh, publish episodes every other Monday. So next time, we will go into the very last issue of Volume 11 for Kane and Rinse. That is issue number 550. Grab your coat, grab your hat, because we're going on a short hike.